Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. But he, he thinks I'm salvageable. You know, people all through my life have felt that way, that, that if I could just be brought to see the light, that I would be different. But they were just dumb. <laughs> The great has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, if you found out that your brother slept with your wife, would you kill your brother's children and then feed them to him in a stew? Well, <clears throat> depends on how many children. I, I can see. I can see the one, <laughs> the one that looks the most like my brother physically, <laughs> and certainly not the females. Uh, they, yeah, they, no, no, no. They, these are two sons, actually. Yeah, they're, the sons, because every time you look at their face, they would just remind you of the betrayal. Um, the daughters would be innocent of this. <laughs> by the way, you should introduce yourself. I'm David I think Pizarro. you're a little surprised. Oh, by yeah, the I was surprised by the question. I'm David Pizarro <laughs> from Cornell University. So you're all into like Greek shit now. Is this, is this what I'm hearing? Yeah, but before we get into that, we should note that we have Will Wilkinson on the show. Will Wilkinson, fairly well known uh, writer and blogger for The Economist. He's also written for Forbes, for Reason Magazine, because he's got a bit of a libertarian streak, Will Wilkinson does. And we're going to be talking with him about actually you uh will and i will probably team up on you about your odd views on novels but will also i'm so happy to get him on the show because he wrote this he wrote an article that just hurt my feelings attacking just the entire field of psychology but mostly social psychology so yeah i got hurt feelings i got hurt feelings i'm like a prize asshole no one even mentions my casserole so yes, Will Wilkinson's Daily Beast article hurt Dave's feelings, and we'll get to talk about that with him coming up on part two. And we'll also ask the question of whether fiction makes us better people, more empathetic. But first, yeah, I'm very into the Greeks. I think I mentioned this on the podcast. I teach a great books course um, once a year in the Honors College, the Greek myths. I just love them. You know, <laughs> what's funny about it is, if you, if you haven't read it, these are the most fucked up stories that you can possibly imagine, right? I mean, Tarantino has nothing <laughs> on the Greeks. Yeah. You know, have you read have you read the Old Testament too? <laughs> yeah, no, the Old Testament is pretty fucked. <laughs> you know, people were just more fucked up back then. It's it's uh apparently. Are we just yeah, wusses? I mean, we're just the wusses Lot now. story, for example, in the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I like how people wanted to rape the angels in that. So Lot's solution is, all right, I can't let you rape these angels. So here, here, take two of my daughters and then rape them <laughs> yeah. instead. That's honor. Like, That's honor. And then the daughters get him back by getting him drunk and fucking him. Oh, I know. Uh, this is just, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, one of the things I wanted to tell you is this story, because not only is it extremely disturbing, the story itself, but it also they also raise interesting philosophical questions. This is the story of Agamemnon and uh, Orestes and Electra and Clytemnestra. Okay, Agamemnon as I'm sure you know, was the king of Greece that led an army into Troy and won the Trojan War. But just to give you a little idea about his about his family, right? Atreus was his dad, and uh, he had a brother named Thyestes. Thyestes sleeps with Atreus's wife, and he's pissed. And so what he does is... He kills Thyestes' son and then feeds them in, in a stew like he, or some sort of thing. He feeds him the sons, but and I love this, saves the hands and feet. And then to taunt him after he's eaten his sons, he just waves the hand and feet to him. Like he just puts it up and waves the hands and feet of his own children that he just ate. As a way of like trash talking, <laughs> I just made you. Uh, I just made you eat your own kids. <laughs> also, kind of interesting. Thyestes has to go into exile for eating human flesh, even though, of course, that wasn't his intention. <laughs> uh, he has to go into exile, and his solution. This reminds me of the Lot story: is to sleep with his daughter so that they could have a son. That would get revenge on Atreus. Okay. Anyway, uh, that ends up happening, but they have he has these two sons. Atreus, before he dies, has Agamemnon and Menelaus. Uh, all right. Now, Agamemnon, this is right before the Trojan War. Zeus has decreed that they have to sail to Troy and win the war. Right before they go, he's about to leave this army. He's got, you know, 60,000 troops. Um Agamemnon pisses off one of the gods. Just you don't you, you shouldn't do that, but he he kills a sacred deer and boasts to her that that he's a better hunter than she is. And so she stills the wind that and doesn't let them sail. And he's got to sail because it's decreed by Zeus, it's fate. It's fate that he does it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh but they say the only way you can do it is by sacrificing the thing that's most precious to you. So he, Agamemnon, sacrifices his own daughter, Iphigenia, and that works. But he literally, he slits her, he slits her throat in a, in a sacrifice, and she has no idea that, that this is going to happen. They sail to Troy, now you have the story of the Iliad, and win the Trojan War, right? Meanwhile, this time, Agamemnon's wife, um, back on the island, is, 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 is furious, A, that, that he killed his own daughter. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though he was kind of compelled to, but still she she blames him for that. And she's also been shacking up with this guy, Aegisthus, 
and sleeping with him, and they plot revenge on Agamemnon. Uh, and as soon as he gets home, and he brings home some... This is the other thing that pissed Clytemnestra off. Even though she's been shacking up with Aegisthus, he brought home a, a kind of mistress. And she kills... She and Aegisthus kill both of them. Kill Agamemnon in a bathtub. I believe in a bathtub. They have two other kids. Uh, one of them's named Orestes. One of them names Electra. And I hope you're following this. I hope the audience is following this. Orestes has to be smuggled out so that so that Aegisthus won't kill him because he's worried that Orestes is going to take a revenge. Aegisthus is the lover, remember, uh, of Clytemnestra, and so he's smuggled out by his tutor, or else he was he was dead. He was a goner. Electra is not threatened to be killed but but they you know they sort of banish her from the palace and she has to live out just live outside and live more ordinary life even though she should have been a princess and is stewing she's furious at her mother and wants to kill her and wants to kill Aegisthus and she waits her, her whole young life for Orestes to get back cuz she can't do it herself and Orestes to take revenge that happens. Orestes comes back. They plot together. They kill Aegisthus. And then they kill their mother before killing Agamemnon. Now, here's where the question, here's where the interesting philosophy comes in. And now they're on the hook still. Now they're blameworthy for, for the act. And Zeus's sons come down. And this is a really interesting quote. The reason they're on the hook is not because Clytemnestra didn't deserve to die. Pretty much everyone agrees she did deserve to die for killing Agamemnon. But what they say is, is that, yes, Clytemnestra has had her just desserts, but by your, he's speaking to Orestes and Electra, he says, Clytemnestra has had her just desserts, but by your unjust act. Hmm. And so that's my question, right? A, is that a coherent idea that Clytemnestra could have received what she deserved, the punishment that she deserved, and, and they were the only ones who were going to do it. Nobody else was going to kill Clytemnestra. She was a queen, right? right? But the act itself was still unjust. How do you make sense of that? It's, it's an interesting question. There's, a, there's one way in which they don't mean in which you could say that, that uh, somebody gets what they deserve through an unjust act, and that is... Suppose that somebody is really deserving of punishment, um, but through complete coincidence, uh, somebody deserves to die, and um, they end up being innocent bystanders in an armed robbery and get shot and killed, right? So the people who shot and killed her are are maybe agents of justice in some grand sense of the word, but they what they did was wrong, and it's just coincidence that, right. that they punished. So that, I, I take it that that's a way in which you might say justice was meted out but by an unjust act sure um, and, but, the, but that's not but, they, but that's a coincidence that's a coincidence this isn't, this a, isn't coincidence. a coincidence this is actually motivated to punish it's just the wrong agent of punishment <clears throat> so is that simp- is that simply what we mean in our society when we say that we sh- what vigilantism is yeah i mean you could argue that vigilantism is an example of this, right? Because there, it's not a coincidence. The vigilante is doing it for the purpose of revenge. And maybe the vigilante is the only one to do it. 
Because right. maybe the guy had a really rich lawyer that got him off. Right. You can imagine uh, Bat- Batman saying, who else is going to do it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but even then, though, the vigilante is – it's wrong for the vigilante to do it, I think, only because there's already another agent assigned or, or writ large society has assigned a group of people to carry out justice. And so right. it's, it's a he's, – he's doing it. Um, without the authority to do it, in the case and, of the and, and it's still just. It seems like I'm not even sure if it's an unjust act. It's it's an illegal act. It's an illegal act. That's right. So that's what I was. That's the distinction I think because it's sort of a breaking a law rather than breaking the sort of deeper principle of justice. Right. Um, and in the case of the kids killing their mom, it seems to be doing two things. Both violating some deeper principle and meeting out some deeper principle at the and meeting out a deeper principle that it, it's the only way that the justice can be carried out right right right, right. Uh, there's nobody else who has the motivation or the means to kill Clytemnestra or probably the balls yeah. So so the co- the incoherence stems from the fact that it is both it is both obligatory and and forbidden. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's incoherent. There's something that seems right about it. I mean, you could argue that the Agamemnon case is sort of parallel, right? He kind of had to kill Iphigenia, his daughter. And actually this even seems more plausible to me in that case. So he had to do it but still, at the same time, you don't kill your daughter. Right. right. So, so if you go into it knowing, I mean, there is a way in which you go into it knowing that this is the case. And uh, it's a little bit like vigilantism, but you can imagine, uh, as people have done before, uh, a criminal so – somebody rapes and murders your daughter and they go to trial and you just pull out a pistol and shoot them. Um, you, See, that's just just. That's, it's just, but, but – <laughs> yeah. Um, but the parallel I'm drawing is that people like that go into it knowing um, that they are both doing a good thing and that they will be punished because they're not allowed to. And so did the ki- in this story, do the kids know pretty much that what they're doing is violating something deep that they'll be punished for? Or do they think – No. In fact, it's sort of uh, – it comes as a surprise. I mean – Electra, at least in the version that we read this time, Electra is she's kind of an avenging angel. She's awesome. You know, Orestes is a little bit led on by her and is very reluctant to kill his mother. So she certainly didn't think that anything that she was doing was wrong or unjust. And Orestes is doing it in part because, again, this is the disanalogy between vigilantianism. Because Apollo said, you know, Apollo the god in, the, in this oracle said that this is what's got to happen. Yeah. And so he's doing it in accordance with God's laws. Yeah, and yeah. he's, you know, you could argue at least that he, he's, he had a right to do it because she, not only did she kill his dad, but she, she probably would have killed him. Right? right, if if he didn't get smuggled out. So, ca- so can there be a case where two opposite actions conflict in such a way that you're you're damned if you do, damned if you don't? Yeah, I mean, maybe Oedipus is another somewhat analogous case where, even though it just wasn't his fault at 
in one sense, right, that he killed his his dad and married his mother. <laughs> yeah. God, they were into incest <laughs> in ancient times. You know, it's, although those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> so is it so obvious that it's completely unjust to kill your mother out of revenge? You know, in this case, and one of my students made this point, actually, she's what she wasn't much of a mother to them <laughs> you know right. she right. almost killed the 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 son and and she you know she actually may have taken steps to save electra from Aegisthus, who might have killed her but she did banish her from the kingdom essentially and in the version that we read she's living with some very decent farmer it's not what she's used to or what what she expects right. the farmer won't have sex with her she's also still a virgin farmer won't have sex with her just cuz he thinks that would just be it's just, it would be too staining for her <laughs> but after they kill Aegisthus, who they kill first electra takes Aegisthus's head and just starts trash-talking to the head. Like, she's kind of badass. <laughs> that's why, badass. That's why they made a movie about her starring it, Jennifer no, no, Garner. No, no, no. She, 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 she takes the head and she starts insulting his masculinity. <laughs> she, she essentially says, you were Clytemnestra's bitch. You didn't run the house. She said, when I get married, I want a man. Oh, and man. you're not a man. And she's just doing this to this bloody head. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so... So anyway, back to this question, yeah. Yeah. It's funny because it's very hard to explain. And I think, you know, this might have been something that was easier for the Greeks to wrap their heads around. Of course, this is part of the thesis of my book that they just have different core intuitions about responsibility and justice than we do. But it also kind of seems to make sense to a degree. Yeah, the it's some is it some version of so I'm trying to wrap my head around why it seems on the face of it correct to say that it was an unjust act to kill your own mother. Is it some version of of the the just slapping your father? Because I I think that that's that's where I would resolve the incoherence by just saying, well, they're just wrong. They're they're just sort of placing too much emphasis on this family bond because obviously the family bond didn't mean nearly as much as like in general it ought to mean. So killing your mom in this case is like not that fucked up. I mean, yeah. So I think you know, as as much as they didn't seem to respect certain duties or obligations that you have with your relatives, like not killing them. <laughs> Cooking them and feeding them to to your brother. <laughs> I but, love how he gets screwed for eating human flesh. And then, up. yeah, no, exactly. And then he's exiled. <laughs> he must have been, now this is bullshit. <laughs> this is fucking bullshit. I just was forced to eat my own kids and I get exiled? <laughs> and he's so, fine? So this is consistent with, I, I think it's work by Leanne Young and, and colleagues showing that violations that involve disgust don't, just don't require intentionality to the same degree that violations involving harm, right? You, you know, if you do something by mistake um, that's really, really gross, you're you might still receive blame for it. And that's for us. And like that's for us, for, right? So you can imagine. The, I think the Greeks just didn't require intentionality to anywhere near the degree that we do. 
whether it's the act is disgusting or not, because uh, there's tons of examples, and you can look at my book if you're interested in this, of, 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 of people being blamed for things that they just had no control over. Right. I mean, and just the, I mean the notion of fate, just to begin with, right, uh, kind of, I mean, not to get into the whole free will and, and compatibilism, but... But just clearly the notion of fate that somebody's required to do something by, by the decrees of a god, they can't do otherwise, but yet they're still morally responsible for it. We should actually And that's another that. line from the play, right? Uh, they say that this was – it was necessity. It was necessity that Orestes did it. And he was still unjust and he right. still had to go on trial and atone for it. And Electra was not allowed to live in the kingdom that should have been hers. And right. So, uh, we need to revisit this. I mean this is it's, – it's just – seems more incoherent maybe to us but you know certainly calvinists the greeks probably buddhists have no problem reconciling these things i agree yeah. all right let's wrap this up we'll, we'll save that for another show we'll be right back with will wilkinson but it has done things to your soul your soul nothing nothing whatever <laughs> no, this is a serious question, not a. on Very Bad Wizards with Will Wilkinson. Will, welcome to the podcast. Hi, glad to be here. Let's tell the listeners a little bit about your background. Uh, I'm sure many of them have read a lot of your stuff in The Economist. Where else have you published? Daily Beast. We'll talk about an article you did that was trashing Dave. Uh, <laughs> by name, but his field, everything he does, his devoted his everything he holds dear. Yeah. 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 And, but uh, where else have you written? Where else do you blog? Uh, well, a lot of places. Uh, I I've written, I guess, for Forbes and The Atlantic and Reason, if you know that magazine. Uh, oh yeah, the and, big libertarian. Yeah, and plenty of places here and there. <laughs> Newspaper editorials, that sort of thing. And you were at the Cato Institute, correct? For not quite six years. Uh, from 2004 to 2010, I was a uh, research fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Um, and you know, I didn't even know Cato Kalin had an institute. That's uh, weird. Cato Kalin, uh, <laughs> after the OJ trial, came into a lot of money and was interested <laughs> in politics, and and that is how it got its name yeah. and changed yeah. changed his name to spell with a C. Yeah. And before that, you were in my business, right? Yeah. Before I was at Cato, I was a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Maryland. Uh, uh, I I dropped in and out a couple times when I was in. Originally, I was doing philosophy of mind and language 
I dropped out for a little while to get a job at an internet startup, and then the internet bubble burst, and then I got a job at a libertarian nonprofit in uh, Arlington, Virginia, called the Institute for Humane Studies uh, for a couple years. Went back to grad school, went into political philosophy, uh, did that for a while, and then dropped out again just before I started my dissertation and ended up at Cato. And then you dropped out of Cato, correct? And went back to grad school. Are you going to drop out in the middle of this episode? I'm like a little worried. <laughs> in the middle of this episode, I'm probably going to um, just, just suggest that we go in a completely different direction. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm easily distracted. Uh, yeah, I, I parted away with Cato in, in, uh, in 2010 and... Uh, at the time, I was in Iowa City, Iowa, where my uh, fiance Carrie Howley, was doing her MFA in creative writing. And while I was there, I kind of caught the creative writing bug, and I decided I wanted an MFA in creative writing. I, I was an art major as an undergraduate and uh, always wanted to be an artist, really, and never really meant to go into political commentary. And so now here I am at the University of Houston in the uh, creative writing program trying to write a novel about my time in Washington think tanks. Now, I don't know if you've written anything on it, but I know you're interested and critical of these studies, a recent array of studies that argue that reading fiction increases our capacity for empathy and increases, as, as you just said, our tolerance for ambiguity, and that this occurs both in small children, in preschoolers, and then also in, in adults. So, yeah, I, tell us about your problems with that. I don't really know them. I, I know I had a very frustrating conversation. <laughs> Conversation with David. <laughs> it was, I know, frustrating for for all of the reasons that yeah. you don't think it well, was. Well, so, so there've been a, there've been a number of studies in recent years that, like, you know, expose subjects to fictional works and then give them tests for um, a certain kind, you know, certain kind of empathy, like like whether they can tell what mental state somebody's in by looking at a picture of their eyes or other sorts of things that are, you know, a rough measure of uh, their sort of ability to get inside somebody else's head. And then there are all this uh, other study. You, you give two groups of people two different sets of readings, one of them uh, a set of essays, one of them a set of short stories, and the people who have the short, who read the short stories show themselves to be a little more tolerant of ambiguity afterward than the people who had read the essays. Um, well, the thing that bugs me, there's some things that bug me about these studies as studies, um, but my complaint is more the use to which they're put. Um, there have been a n- number of articles that take these studies and then use them to talk about how reading fiction makes us better people uh, or, right. or, or, ha- right. or how uh, reading fiction is morally improving. And I, like, I'm, I'm in an English literature program learning to write fiction. I'm really interested in these questions. I just think the case that fiction is morally improving is just really, really, really weak. Uh, and the things that are you know, brought to bear as evidence, like these studies about empathy and ambiguity, even if they were good studies, it's just, it just, it just doesn't get you very far because it's really unclear what role empathy and a tolerance of ambiguity play in making us uh, virtuous people or what part they play in a 
larger system of social morality that makes our society a decent place. So there's a lot of assumptions um, that go into, you know, extrapolating from this kind of study to say that fiction, like, so I, I think it's true. It looks like it's true. If you make people read a story or people who read a lot of fiction are slightly more empathic, um, that that's not necessarily just a selection effect. It, it also seems to be true that people with a, 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 a large capacity for empathy are more attracted to reading fiction. That kind of stands to figure. Like people who find it easy to get inside other people's shoes are going to find it, you know, attractive to, you know, get inside this simulation. And, but I think that there is something, you know, like that the, the reading fiction probably does make us a little bit more empathetic. It's just not clear what that has to do uh, with morality in an interesting way. I, I'll, I'll let you guys jump in. Yeah, I mean, ta- so Tamler, maybe, because I mean, that is the broad claim, right, that it makes us better people. And then these psychological studies tr- attempt it to, to get at this with these more more refined constructs. But but the the broader claim that it just makes you be- it makes you a more moral or a better, more virtuous person is, yeah, I, I take it, was came earlier than these studies. Um, and yeah, you, well, Martha Nussbaum, long before anybody was doing these kind of empirical studies, has argued that it makes us better judges, right? Because we're more able, through our better understanding of the complexity of what causes and what motivates behavior, and uh, so, so if we're if if we're judges, I mean, literally judges, judges who adjudicate cases, criminal cases, we will have more empathy for the criminal and a better understanding of why they committed the crimes that they did <laughs> and i you know i think it'll it, it'll make us more merciful and, and and i don't even know if merciful is the right term it'll make us better understand what the criminal's true culpability is because of our awareness of all the different factors that go in to somebody committing an immoral or criminal action. So here's my problem with, with the, the Nussbaum claim. Not, I don't have a problem with her, her particular – well, I do have a problem with, with the claim. It seems weird. Uh, Can but you then, be a okay. little more specific? <laughs> yeah. Weird. What are you? Yeah, 14? It, seem, it seems it seems weird in that uh, in that it's unclear whether understanding the mind of the criminal would ever follow from reading fiction. Why why it would actually make you a better judge and not sort of a, more of a sucker of a judge and like it, you know if you understand Raskolnikov's motivation, like you might be less likely to punish him in the way that he deserves. Yeah, it's 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 just vague. it's so vague. It's such a vague vague claim. And like after and- after nine eleven, right? Uh, there was you know a lot of people were, were like you know we really have to understand what the terrorists were thinking. Right, um, right. And, 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 and 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 the conservative reaction to that is like is like what does it matter? They're murderers, right? right. And, and 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 there's a sense in which I find this complexity interesting, where the 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 implicit charge of conservatives is that by extending empathy to evil people, you're softening your resolve to apply moral rules that are necessary for civilization. And in that sense, like um, amplifying your sympathy or empathy, like fiction is is incredibly seductive. Uh, You know, like if you read Lolita or something, you really do get inside Humbert Humbert's head. And I mean, I I recently picked it up again. um, And it's just, you know, it's like one of the 
best books ever. Um, but like, yeah. you know, like for like a week after I was reading it, I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was on the lookout for nymphets, right? Like, I was like, You're like it's fine, like, it's fine. There's something there's totally nothing wrong with it. Yeah, there's that might just pretty, be you. There's something pretty sexy that. about this twelve-year-old girl, right? And, and, and I would not have had that thought if I was not inside Humbert Humbert's head for a while. It's not clear to me that that kind of expansion of empathy is morally improving it actually brings me closer and it makes me more uh less judgmental about somebody who's clearly morally odious um so there's that aspect of it as far as the news bomb stuff goes i mean like a part of what that was like in the in the 90s there was this you know kind of debate among philosophers uh, and, you know, and, 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 and Nussbaum is a you know a great scholar of uh, of ancient philosophy. A lot of the virtue ethicists, the you know mostly like the the, the people who are doing moral and political philosophy who are inspired by the ancients, um, oh, they had this criticism of sort of modernist moral philosophy that it was too rule bound and too principle bound, and the big charge. Uh, was that, look, you can have these rules, you can have moral rules, um, but you ha- always have to apply the rules, right? And, and there's no rule to tell you under which circumstances to apply the rule. Uh, the, what you really do is have to read situations accurately and apply judgment. Um, and and so there was all this stuff about particularism. There was a, a book by like Lawrence right. Bloom. And so we have to cultivate a sensitivity to the the contours of particular situations and to see what all the morally relevant aspects of the situation are before we can uh, know what rule to apply. And I think that's a I think that's a really good criticism. I think it's something that's. I think they're right about that. Uh, that's yeah. a, that is exactly what Nussbaum is saying, is yeah. that fiction enables us to understand the particulars of a situation. And, you know, when they be- said that it might make us not judge them as harshly as we should, where does he get the should without, without having a good sense of what the particulars of a situation is? How do you know what they deserve without at least uh, getting call, a, a... Call me crazy, but sometimes I just think, you know, murderers <laughs> deserve... That's <laughs> fine. I mean, I understand that, right? I mean, sometimes I mean, that's what, you got to do what you got to do. Well, and that's what makes... That's what puzzles me. I mean, I understand now that this, this sort of... This desire to, to avoid these harsh rule-bound... The, the harsh rule-bound tradition of in normative ethics but but it also struck me as as odd that you of all people who who hangs their moral code on knee-jerk honor anger um <laughs> that, that you would actually argue that that we should actually pause and and really consider the mind of the pedophile well you um, know what so no 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 okay <laughs> oh no no so it's something exceptions. you said earlier that i very much agree with and i think here's where nussbaum here's where i disagree with nussbaum <laughs> is that you also have to understand and be empathetic for the victim in these right. situations. And that might lead to uh, a harsher judgment. And one of the things that you have to be empathetic about is to imagine 
the kind of vindictiveness that they might feel. I, I mean, you and know that, that I'm in favor of taking the victim's feelings and desires into account when you're determining the punishment, because one thing you can do with the victim is just ask them. And, and that's something that Nussbaum's, Nussbaum's system doesn't allow for. It only focuses on the particulars of what led the criminal to commit the crime and not what, how the victim is ex- so, or the and, victim's family, the kind of pain that they're experiencing. That so I'm re- with you there, but I think once you do that, you need to understand the particulars on all sides. I and still it, agree with the method, even if I don't agree with yeah, the conclusion. It seems reasonable. I mean, that's a, that's a perfectly reasonable claim, but, but the, at the heart of it is this empirical claim that, that reading fiction actually causes us to be that way. And that's what I'm not so sure about. So, so there's a few, st- there's maybe three studies that have attempted to, to show this. Um, but, at the, but at the heart, it, it really is an empirical claim, and, and Martha Nussbaum might not care about whether or not there's evidence. You know, it strikes me that, that people like you, Tamler, will just say, well, and the studies haven't been done right, and when they finally are done right, it will, it will bear out my No, I don't but, know. I'm a little agnostic about that. It strikes me as plausible, but yeah. I agree. I mean, so talk about the studies and why you think they don't show what they're supposed to show. I had a big beef about the about the the one about it's uh, opening the closed mind, the effect of exposure to literature, and the need for closure. Uh, one of the key authors in a lot of these studies is a guy named Keith Oatley from the University of Toronto, who's really big into this idea that fiction sort of expands empathy and that that's sort of critical to morality. This particular paper, which is uh, you know a, a 2013 paper in create, the Creativity Research Journal. Um, it's just really abysmally designed because um, the, the, the way it's designed is basically, you know, like two – there are two groups. One gets a set of essays. One gets a set of short stories. And then afterwards, there's a couple of these tests for a need for closure. Um, and they find the people who are given the stories show that they have a, you know, a, a statistically significant smaller degree in their need for need, need for closure. And the thing is, right. they, but, but you look at the study and, you, and, you, and it was just it was just bowled me over how sort of poorly designed it was. There's a list of essays it's, and it's interesting. They're all kind of they're mostly all all the pieces are kind of early to mid 20th century pieces. I don't know why they picked. So the, right, the, the so. essays are like Henri Bergson and Havelock Ellis and Sigmund Freud and like the right. George Bernard Shaw. And then there's one like Stephen Jay Gould essay. And then all the stories, it's it's Paul Bowles, Frank O'Connor, Gene Stafford, William Stegner, Glenway Westcott, who is one of my favorites who nobody knows about. That's a that's an interesting choice. But so the, so the, they, they, they go to some trouble to try to control for the difficulty of the stories. They want to make sure that the nonfiction and the fiction are at the same level of readability. But there's like a billion other things that they don't control for. So all of these particular essays, it's a particular kind of essay. It's an argumentative essay, the point of which is to come to a definitive conclusion about what to think about a certain subject. All of these particular stories are mid-century modernist short stories. And that genre that subgenre is about, in some sense, ambiguity. Um, right. and, and there are, and so like the, the the modernist short story generally ends with a kind of like sense of sort of lyrical suspension that's indefinite, or a kind of transformative epiphany. And the epiphany is almost always everything that I thought I knew is false. 
right. the end, right? <laughs> right? So, and so they so they so they picked a bunch of story. They picked a bunch of stories that that the aesthetic effect is one of ambiguity and inconclusiveness, and they picked a bunch of essays that the point of which is to like. I, you, you, yeah. So do you see what I'm saying? No, absolutely. So I mean, so it's essentially that you're. It's essentially let's find a manipulation of of uh, openness or, or low need for closure, and then and then ask people how they feel on on need for closure. Yeah. It, uh, this is, I mean, this is the argument, not not to rehash it, but what I was talking uh, to Tamler about yesterday, which was, you know, the claim is so broad that, okay, you need to start saying, well, what kind of fiction? And the answer that the, the authors of this particular paper give is, well, the kind of fiction that leads to low, co- low need for closure. That's what we mean. So they pick, they handpick those, those essays. Right. Uh, and then they exactly. give this 42-item need for closure scale that says, so there are items like, I think that having clear rules and order at work is essential for success. They, g- they g- stack the deck. Give yeah. people an Ayn Rand novel and then see what their need for closure is afterwards. Right. Right and, right. and, get, yeah. and yeah, there's, a, there's a broader problem here that like relates to sort of my interest in genre in literary stuff. There's no reason for scientists to try to study the difference between fiction and nonfiction in terms of like because fiction and nonfiction aren't real categories. Thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to tell Tamara. So, 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 so the, 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 um, like, but it wasn't relevant to our. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. fiction and nonfiction, like the 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 like what makes something. <laughs> Fiction or nonfiction just simply has to do with like the the, the semantic you know properties of like like do the proper names refer that has nothing to do with so I think it has to do with the difference between implication and implicature but the fact that that there is a blurry vague boundary between a genre doesn't mean that there aren't clear cases on either side and that you can't make comparisons between the clear cases, right? Well, you could, but but I think that the point is that there are clear cases of nonfiction that would increase the uh, the acceptance of ambiguity. Uh, that is, it doesn't even make sense as, a, as an initial claim. I mean, I think that the best we can do here is to say something like literature, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, essay, whatever, uh, that there is literature that increases your tolerance for ambiguity and, and decreases your need for closure. Yeah. I mean, right? so, so, that, so, like, let, let me like it, embellish the point that I was making earlier about these particular stories that they, that, that they picked. So like in the, in the early 20th century, the short story – was one of America's most you know popular forms of popular entertainment. There were like magazines and newspapers were full of short stories, um, but these were famous for being uh, horribly sentimental and didactic. Uh, it was always about like you know you know what happens if you know uh, a woman is unchaste and loses her virtue or like what you know like what happens if you're a dissolute bachelor or you know the rewards <laughs> that will come to the virtuous and 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 the innovation in the short story uh, with the sort of advent of modernism in the early part of the 20th century was a reaction to the didactic story, the story that was too neatly tied up that had and and I bet if you like were, gave people these magazine stories from the 1890s that uh, the, that they all are formulaic, they end with a tidy moral. Um, I, those stories were popular 
precisely because they were catering to people's need for closure. That's why people liked them so much. That's why they were such a popular form. Fine, but um, that's, sh- and, and that's so, and, shitty but it's, fiction. Yeah, that's yeah, really, really <laughs> bad fiction. Yeah, so you can call it shitty fiction, but if the claim is – if you're making a claim about fiction – Punct, right? Like, right. then it needs to include fiction. If your if, if your claim is that you know, I think fiction that tr- that deals in ambiguity has an effect right. on people's sense of ambiguity, then we'll be right. like, well, you know, no shit, Sherlock, right? Like, right. but that's not telling. Uh, us and by the way, nonfiction that deals in ambiguity, same thing. Yeah, nonfiction that right. deals in ambiguity, same thing. <laughs> so you haven't made any interesting claim about what fiction as such or nonfiction as such right. does to people. So the broad claim is clearly just misguided, and the narrow claim is just almost true by I mean, by I mean look, I agree that the fiction and nonfiction distinction is dumb because, look, uh, watching documentaries, I think, will increase your tolerance for ambiguity right. more, than a, more than a lot of movies would. That, that's at least Are documentaries intuition. fiction or nonfiction? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they're nonfiction, although, of course, you know, documentaries have elements of both. They're, they're, but, Spinal but, Tap, I don't know. Uh, that was true. Right? It's a mockumentary. <laughs> mockumentaries make you more empathetic. That's, a, that's what the, the next study should be. Mockumentaries turn tap. your empathy if to only, eleven. If only Scalia <laughs> would watch more Spinal Tap. <laughs> okay. Best in show increases your empathy for dogs. But but I want to defend the general gist of this. I, I mean, I took it, and I'm trying to interpret these studies in the best possible light. That the idea is you sit there and you read a complex book, a great book of some kind, okay? And I, and I guess I do equate great books with books that deal with the complexity of life mm-hmm. and that aren't being didactic. And that is, I mean, all the great TV of the last few years, uh, the last 10, 15 years, right, has dealt with moral ambiguity and moral complexity. The great literature, the literature we always go back to, Shakespeare, the Greek tragedies uh, that, that Nussbaum focuses on, these deal with the, the massive moral complexity of life. And, of course, there are other genres that can also deal with the moral complexity of life, but literature has been... Uh, has been very good at this in ways that other genres have not, and that encouraging people to read this literature, this great literature, is something that can improve them as people. Will it make them more moral? I don't know. But improve them as people. Well, I I I believe in the liberal arts as well, like liberal humanism about education and about, um, you know, the great books... I think it's just I think it's just true and the and the reason to read you know great books whether it's philosophy or or fiction is that it like helps you understand what life is about um it kind of puts you in touch with sort of deep truths about the nature of the world I think there's something true about that um it's not clear to me that it makes you I I think it makes your life better and it makes your experience of life richer um, and I do think at the margin, a certain kind of person really benefits from from the way that, you know, great art uh, and, and, and great thought sort of opens up their mind. Uh, but like as a more general claim, I just I just don't know that it's that it's that it's true that fiction per se 
makes a big difference. Like, like if you really get into Shakespeare and Dostoevsky, you're go- it's going to give you some insights into the way the human mind works and the complexities of the human soul. Um, but it's not clear to me that that's going to make you a better dad. Like, people can understand things, but that doesn't mean that they're going to act on them or know how to act on them. Um, so I, It doesn't guarantee it, yeah. but it might make it more likely. You know, I, I could just everything that was just said about like the power of the, the liberal arts, like I, I have similar feelings to sci- about science. Like, I think that, that just Speaking having everybody be educated in science and like actually uh, you know, understand, say, the atomic theory of matter or whatever, like that, 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 that would probably Im- improve our society and our life. I, I think, and I, there's nothing in what you said Tamla that I disagree with about like the value. It's just that when you turn it into a specific scientific claim, like then you when you have to actually make all of those caveats about what you mean, it turns into something that's probably just true in a boring way. That like reading about moral ambiguity makes you more able to deal with moral ambiguity and the the, the shades of gray that we deal with in everyday life. But it's just not the sort of interesting claim that people seem to think it is in these essays or in these psychological studies yeah i mean like yeah like so let's talk about great books for a second tamler what what like why why does plato banish poets like i is is he full, is, is he is full the, of I shit mean, does he does, does he <laughs> he's kind of a dick like like the, the reason why having I like, sex with his favorite little boy i think he's i think he's on to something and the reason why and and, and and this is one of the reasons why i one of the reasons why i resist this claim is because i think the effect of fiction like it's very hard to find a general effect on moral psychology like makes you more empathetic or not i think a, a fiction is is most powerful when it is didactic, um, and that and that propaganda has an incredibly powerful effect on what people think the good life is, uh, how they decide to live their life. So, so fiction or poetry or theater or whatever it is that that you know Plato is talking about really does have a huge effect on what people think about morality and think about how to live. Um, like I, I read Atlas Shrugged when I was 19 and it changed my life for a few years. I don't know for the better. Right. <laughs> right. But, but, but so the, the, so the, I think the, the moral, you can't the blame fiction for, Atlas. no, no, no. I mean, yes, you can. Well, if you're going to you give can. it credit, you can, you, you can, because I, I, I think dramatized philosophy or you can call it propaganda. I think it's just easiest to call it like like a kind of compelling propaganda really affects people's opinions about the way to live life. But there's no reason to believe that people who are good at writing compelling propaganda are going to identify the truths about how we really ought to live our lives. So there's a huge threat that people are going to be persuaded by propagandistic novelists to get onto the gold standard or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> uh, when, when Shut down the government. When in fact that's a horrible idea. So you need to get rid of these dangerous people and let people who really know something about how people should live their lives be in charge. I mean, I think that's... But Plato didn't want to ban all poets and playwrights. He just wanted to ban the ones that he couldn't control because he thought fiction was only useful for its propaganda effects. 
And it was dangerous precisely when, when it didn't have a carefully honed message designed by the Philosopher King. Right. I mean, I, I think Plato's point is a, is a good one. Like, like, if you don't get the content of the claims about how we live, how ought to live our lives or organize our society right, then the influence of these books can have a pernicious effect. You are telling me as a well, well-known, even though you don't want to identify yourself as a libertarian, you now want to censor works of fiction so that they don't have a destructive effect on the moral consciousness? I, I'm tempted to just be like, yes, exactly. That, that's, exactly <laughs> that's exactly what I'm arguing for. No, no, no. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not arguing for that. Um, I, I, I love my internet porn. Uh, don't want it to go anywhere. But well, that only has good effects. Though. That only has good. It, it, yeah. It, it, it. Well, actually, it has great effects on my happiness and well-being, which is what yeah. we should talk about next. It make, makes you flourish as a person. Let's take a very quick break and then come back because I know Dave has to go soon, and I want you to express your displeasure with social psychology. <laughs> okay. Before we have to end this. Oh, as I come back, come back. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're here with Will Wilkinson, who who uh, was. I'm I'm just so happy that he combined forces with me to tell Tamler how wrong he was about his his views on this. <laughs> this <topic>. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was nice to be able to set two people straight. Uh, one <laughs> in, uh, but now, but now let's talk a little bit about. Uh, so, so Will has has written a couple of times at least on on the psych- sort of positive psychology, the the psychology of happiness, and um, one of the pieces was. Uh, you know, there was this this case where Barb Fredrickson, who's a, a well-known psychologist, got she published a book and she made a lot of placed a lot of importance on this particular finding of hers that turns out not to be a finding at all, which was which was something about the ratio of good to bad events that's ideal for people's happiness. So this positivity three to one positivity ratio. Um, and this seemed like a really interesting, awesome, you know, we can boil down happiness to a mathematical equation until some people actually bothered to check the math. And it turns out that this was horribly wrong. And so, Will, you wrote about this in the Daily Beast. And I agree with, with the essential problem here, which is that sometimes we, we do this really conceptually and, and poor work. Um, but if we can make it sound sciency, then then it gets a lot of buzz. But it turns out that uh, Alan Sokol, who's a physicist, along with two other psychologists, just published this excruciatingly devastating critique of this work on positivity, showing that the math was completely incompetent. 
which we can talk about that mm-hmm. that problem in general. But uh, you go on to to just give us such a hard time where you say there's a well, there's a gr- great sentence that you have here. I th- you say something like the problem isn't that Fredrickson is a really bad psychologist. The problem is that she's one of the best. <laughs> and then you just lay into the entire field about our conceptual sloppiness and uh, about a number of uh, a number of problems in the field. So I wanted to take a little bit of time to say both I, I agree that we're, there's a lot of problems, but you lump in Diedrich Stoppel's fraud, you lump in Barbara Fredrickson's incompetence at math, and one of the things that you ignore is that two psychologists published with Sokol, in fact, to correct our own field. So I want to at least say... <laughs> Well, let's talk. Let's talk about the conception. Okay. Well, what I said about that, that it, so so I, I, you know, science ideally is self-correcting, and it's and it's great that people got around to it. Um, but they never would have gotten around to it if this hadn't been such a giant paper. Uh, the you know, it's been cited over a thousand times. Most psychologist dream of a paper and the only reason it was cited so many times is because it uses this rhetoric of mathematical precision that makes it seem as though it's quantified something that simply hasn't been quantified um and and so the, the 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 fact that the 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 fact that there was a correction eight years later um, is that I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how good that makes you guys look. Of, of, of the thousand citations, how many of those authors actually read the paper? Um, if uh, I don't know how many people is that? Maybe that's 500 people. Um, like, yeah, like yeah. so, there's 500 people who didn't bother to see if the math checked out or didn't understand what a differential equation is, or like. So I'm not, I'm not sure that it's a great thing if it takes like, you know, like an MA student in positive psychology well, in in England to be like, what? This math makes no sense. Like, oh, it's, it was I an mean, MA student. Yeah, it was an MA student. Yeah, this guy, yeah. like this guy named Brown. I mean, it's a horrible, it's a horrible thing that this happened. But, I, but a, I don't think that this is the kind of thing that is is limited to psychology. I mean, there there are important papers that get cited quite a bit. I, I doubt that most people read most of the papers that they cite in any field. I think that that fraud, right. outright fraud, and actual just errors take a while to get caught. Um, it, across any field, yeah. but here, but then you start lumping. That, but then that, here's where you just mount this like <laughs> heaping. So, so you say like, well, not only is this problematic, but then you say like, they only like psychologists only study self-report of American college students, and so the, the, there's no way we can arrive at truth about human nature by just looking at college students. Um, and then you say this, it's. It's sloppy. Most work in psychology and the social science suffers from a lack of conceptual rigor. It's sloppy around the edges and in the middle, too. So then you, you lay into happiness research. So is your problem, Dave, that all this is just so obviously true? That it's no, 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 no. My problem is... That, said? No, my problem is that there is a lot of truth, but... But it's a. It, I think that it's a criticism that is. It feels motivated in a way to lump together all of these problems as and and then conclude something about the field in general. So so the problem of samples is a different one than the problem of 
of this sort of physics envy. Um, but there's a lot of cases in which studying college students is a perfectly reasonable strategy when you're doing hypothesis testing. And in fact, oh, sure, most sure. people, yeah, we, and we, so Tamler and I actually have a, a, an episode where we discuss this in detail that a lot of the work that we do that is, is hypothesis testing actually doesn't matter, you know, so if you're trying to falsify something and you use and you randomly assign college students to one condition versus another, um, you can actually make a great, you can make some conclusions about uh, about uh, whether or not your theory is right. And that's why most people are fine using using Because American if the college hypothesis students. is not confirmed, then you've falsified. Exactly. Theory. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. That, that's fine. I, I, I was I more brought it up because I felt like the, 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 the way Fredrickson deployed this particular study uh, fell victim to this very problem where, where, where this paper was just, I mean, it was just trashed. And, and, and so like, <laughs> just to make clear to people, like, so the claim was that it has to do with like the, the ratio of, of positive emotion in your day, right? Like, right. like, so if you, if, if, if the rate, right, like how many, how many positives did you have? Yeah. Three. Well, yeah. you should have one negative. Yeah. So, so, so if, if your experience is twice as positive as it is negative, um, you, you, you know, you might seem like a sort of positive person. The claim is that there's really no detectable effect from a two to one positivity right. ratio. Um, and there's no detectable effect from a 2.5 to 1 positivity ratio. And there's no detectable effect from a 2.8 to 1 positivity ratio. Then all right. of a sudden you hit this tipping point and the benefits of positivity start rushing in, right? And, and, and it's actually, it's a really specific claim about a very <laughs> right. specific, it's talking about the nonlinearity of this kind of effect. And the thing is like, basically the only evidence she had was that one paper, but in, in her rebuttal, she cites this one study that she did at Michigan that had to do with like how positive roommates were together and right. man, how do they measure this how do they measure positive versus negative these kind of journals that you sort of like right like experience sampling like what ha- like what just happened tamler did you just receive an insult from your wife about the size of your penis okay that's one negative <laughs> did you now did you just receive three compliments about like your your most recent article those are three positive things yeah, yeah but that's that that wouldn't uh, that, would, <laughs> that wouldn't lead to an overall positive i'd need like 15 more positive Positives. <laughs> yeah. So in well, this particular thing, she was, she was like too saying big. something about my balls that didn't involve me being a bad father. <laughs> so a, cert, a certain atmosphere of positivity among University of Michigan undergrads seemed to get close to the ratio that she had published. And the thing is, like, it just doesn't say anything in isolation. Right. It just doesn't. At and this, you agree with that. I know you know that it at, doesn't at say this, anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, at this point, at, at this point, she, what she should say is, like, fuck, man, we, we messed up about yeah. this. <laughs> that would be the right thing to do. I will say this, and obviously you can tell that the reason that I'm arguing with you is because I'm defensive about all of the sloppiness in my own field. But I do want to say, to her credit, that is one of the most specific hypotheses that I've ever heard a social psychologist come up with. <laughs> talk about talk about a conceptually like talk about a falsifiable claim. I don't I don't know that many claims that we make that are that are so clearly falsifiable. <laughs> So, in terms of the specificity of prediction, yeah. you know, props. 
Yeah, yeah. It, well, that, Unlike the fiction one, I guess. Right? <laughs> right. And that kind of leads to a, another uh, of of my my criticism, which is that the that the theoretical constructs here, you know, like as somebody who's like you know been in philosophy, you just kind of you're just like what, like what, like what is it? So like I like I looked at her book and what she considers, you know, what goes into the positivity bin, just is right. is, a, is a set of emotions that is strangely gerrymandered to leave some emotions in and some emotions out. And there's very little conceptual justification for the gerrymandering. And there's absolutely no empirical justification. She, she hasn't been doing factor analysis to figure out which things are and aren't correlated with each other. Like, it's just like she came up with a list so of certain things. certain emotions she deemed as positive she, and certain she deemed yeah, as negative. She, that's basically it. She came up with a list yeah. and she made up two lists, positive and negative. And then you have to check off which things and like, did you feel, did you feel discouraged? Did you have an experience of beauty? Right. Yeah, this is and, yeah, and, this is just. You're, I mean, you're right. And, this is. I mean, so much of this work is is, and this is why I always really, 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 really want to encourage psychologists to get some training in, in philosophy because it, it, for all of the methodological rigor that psychologists tend to have about the right control groups, and then the statistical rigor that we have, it's about you know the right. Um, the psychologists often just have the most the vaguest concepts, and what this means is that. They can just they can just juke and jive and avoid any criticism because well no that's not what they meant that's uh it's it's just this this level of vagueness that's it's a Let, big weak let's spot. broaden this to the research on happiness which on is happiness in general burgeoning right now and I know you've written about even while you were still at Cato will mm-hmm. you have a lot of problems with all of this happiness research the research that first I want to be clear that like there's a lot of great work the thing that I I'm always complaining about is people reaching past what they've actually found. So if people want to be very specific and say, um, there is such a, there is such a thing as self-reported life satisfaction, right? Self-reported life satisfaction does correlate in a strong way with all sorts of good things about people's lives. And there are all sorts of interesting correlates to self-reported life satisfaction. And I find studies about that to be really useful um, and good studies that follow um, just conventional uh, scientific protocol um, are completely credible. The, the, the problem is is when you say self-reported life satisfaction just is what well-being is or just is what happiness is. It's not. It's not what it is. Um, and, 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 and the people who study this disagree among themselves. If you ask Danny Kahneman what well-being is, he'll tell you one thing. Uh, he, he'll right. give you a very sort of hedonic Bentham sort of idea about, you know, like how long you're experiencing pleasure versus pain. If you ask um, Martin Seligman, he'll give you uh, a complicated account of uh, you know, some combination of subjective experience and more objective, you know, measures of flourishing and so on and so forth. And I find all of the, those discussions about like what well-being really is, those are really useful to have um, and people should have them, um, but they are essentially philosophical conversations and they're not going to... Right, they are. You, you have to define happiness. I mean, so there are two issues. Yeah. One is what what the conceptual work in defining happiness. And I actually think that that... 
that here's a case where the psychologists who do study happiness have at least talked quite a bit about mm-hmm. it. So people like Selman and Hyde and, and, and Eddie Kahneman, they, they tend to at least say, well, okay, like happiness can obviously be defined in a, in a number of ways, but here's what I mean specifically. Whether that's the right answer or not about the, yeah. you know, is it's, a, it's a, even unclear what the criteria would be. Like, I, I guess one would be, does it capture lay, lay notions of what happiness is? But then you get into a whole, whole question about whether or not those defer. The other one comes in, in measurement. And so one of the things that you point out is that a lot of these studies rely on this sort of these two items in the um, what's the economic survey the world survey mm-hmm. uh, called um, and those are those are uh, I forget the wording of it but they're essentially life satisfaction right. Um, self reports, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the the World Value Survey is the, the World Value Survey, right? Um, but it's unclear whether or not self you can ever move beyond self report in terms of happiness. Like it, I don't know. Whether it would ever make sense to say, oh, Tamler, I know that you don't feel well. I know that you claim to be depressed and sad and miserable, but in fact, you're happy, right? Like, I, I don't. I think it's it's sort of at that at that point. Well, we're measuring something else. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I was wondering about that in your paper, Will, because you say one way of interpreting happiness is objective measures of somebody's well-being, and you distinguish this from sort of subjective experience of happiness and i had that same question what does that mean objective measures of somebody's well-being if it's disconnected from the person's subjective experience implying uh, you could correct someone with the right measures happy and unfulfilled and uh they actually are happy and fulfilled um i'm not sure exactly what you i i'm not sure that i'm talking about um objective in the sense of measurability or just as about so so like one one of the sort of one of the main philosophical theories of well-being is sometimes just called an objective less list theory that you count as flourishing if um a bunch of things are true of you um, right. Like whether or not they're true of you may or may not be something that you have access to, and it may or may not be it, like so, so. Some objective list, like so, Aristotle in some ways has an objective list theory uh, it, uh, under certain interpretations, um, and people sometimes puzzle over you know the idea that was common in the Greeks that you can't really know if somebody's like happy until after they've died because part of happiness <laughs> is the, the the love and respect of your children so so the, so the, according to this kind of idea um you may think you're happy but if your children actually despise you you're suffering under a certain kind of illusion and you don't actually in this way objectively you aren't really flourishing because because you're living a lie. You're living a lie. Like I don't want to say that that yeah, to yeah. say that that's true. Um, but 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 there are like accounts of well being that I find relatively credible that include things like that 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 that, that real uh, like objective well being might include relationship like like certain relational properties that you bear to the world that um don't necessarily enter into your objective experience but to be completely disconnected from our subjective experience of life yeah that's where i I jump ship because there's something 
patronizing about it or there's some sort of here's our list of criteria that if you meet them, then you are happy no matter how you actually feel throughout your life. That just right, that right. doesn't strike me. As and, and I think that those are important lists. It's just that they're not, at least, they're not what most people mean when they say happiness. So one way to think of it is the, the opposite way. What if, what if the kids really loved and respected him and all of his coworkers did as well, but, but the person actually thought the opposite and was miserable because of it. Like he was like, I get no, my children hate me. They don't love me. And so his whole life is miserable. And it's weird. And it's, it makes sense to say in some way he lived the right life because in fact, his children did, did love him and accept him. But, uh, it also seems to violate yeah. our, or at least most people's lay notions of what happiness is. If you want to have, but objective list theory, one of the things that you can put on the list is a, a, a certain threshold level of experiential satisfaction. Yeah, uh, yeah, which would, uh, yeah. But then all I would say right, is that like, that's what we want to measure. My own view is closest to a philosopher named uh, Dan Habron, who has done some great conceptual work on the nature of happiness. I, I forget what his name for it is. But uh, the best way to understand it is to think of happiness as kind of the mirror image of depression, where in, it, to a large extent it's dispositional, where if you're a depressed person, your, your affect throughout the day is going to be like slightly negative, you're more likely to sink into a really bad state, um, your uh, positive states tend to be a little less positive and a little more fleeting, um, and so forth. And that doesn't mean like if you're depressed, it doesn't mean that you can't have a great time at a concert or that you're, that, that you don't have like really good days. And part of what it means to say that somebody is a happy person is that they, that they have this more comprehensive emotional condition, kind of analogous to depression right. where on the whole, you feel a little bit up your, your positive states are a little bit higher. They last a little bit longer. Doesn't mean you don't get super sad or that you don't go through blue periods. But when you do, you bounce back a little more quickly. Um, and and and, it, and you don't sink as low. And you don't yeah. sink as low. And 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 I feel like that sort of thing just strikes me just very conceptually as a very plausible idea right. of what most of us mean when we're talking about happiness. Right. And when you say so and so is a happy person, that's I think that's a, a lot of what we what we mean. That sort of thing is all is, is measurable um, and yeah. and and is worth measuring. It just happens to be the a kind of theoretical construct is that people have measurable? Haven't been, uh, how how would you measure that? Well I mean you get peer reports, you get self reports, you get you get uh, I, I think that it's it's not only a perfectly reasonable thing, but I think people actually do attempt to measure this. I mean yeah. so Right. Well, as long as long as we distribute enough fiction so that everybody becomes a better person, <laughs> if we can just make if we can make everybody watch Breaking Bad all the time. I've, I've actually. Great. <laughs> all right, we should wrap this up because I'm way under my three to one ratio of positive. I'm going to need like pretty much just exclusively positive things happening. <laughs> you know, I recommend uh, ecstasy and blowjobs. Yeah. <laughs> Although not at the same time. What? <laughs> Same time is great. That's like George know. Costanza's I'm, George Costanza's tr- attempt at getting sports, food, and sex all at once. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't work. Uh, Thank well, you. thanks very much. Uh, yeah, thanks for a lot. Thanks for having me on. I'm Fun. sorry if it was all rambling.
No, you, <laughs> you can't are. apologize. For, you can't. If you apologize for that, it just makes us look bad. <laughs> that would, we would just have to issue just an apology that we record and play at the end of every episode. That was my intention. I'm actually very positionally oriented, and I just want to look better right. than both of you. <laughs> you want to ramble better than we do. Uh-huh, yeah. All right, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at Just a very bad wizard.